And again, good morning and welcome. If you weren't aware, we are simply uh, just a couple of days away from closing 2019, and we will be ushering in uh, not just a new year, but also a new decade. 2020 is right around the corner. And for many of us, this year may have been, if we are honest with one another, a difficult year. Uh, And the thought of a new year, like every new year, brings us fresh hope for a new start. Many of us are looking ahead to this new year and uh, the new resolutions that we have set for ourselves, hoping that we will see improvement in various areas of our lives. And I want to encourage that and celebrate with you as you um, meet your godly goals. Um, I, I also do want to encourage you that as you look ahead to the new year, consider, friends, that you will have a God-centered resolve in all the goals, whatever they might be, uh, that you hope to accomplish. Consider these words from 18th century New England pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards. Edwards said, Resolution 1, I will live for God. Resolution 2, if no one else does, I still will. And so, friends, as we enter this new year, let us keep our hearts fixed on Jesus and echo Edwards' words that we be resolved to live for Jesus. Now, all through 2019, if this is your first time with us or you've been with us since the beginning, we as a church have been reading through the Bible from beginning to the end, and we have been discovering or maybe even rediscovering the overarching narrative of the scriptures in four major categories. And those are simply creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So if you're a note taker, it's creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We saw God's work of creation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 with our first parents, Adam and Eve. They were living in the idyllic garden with God, loving and enjoying God, dwelling with him as his people. But in Genesis chapter 3, we saw our first parents reject God. They would believe the lie of the serpent, rebelling against God, and therefore casting all of humanity headlong into death and disaster. Adam and Eve's fall broke mankind's communion with God and brought all of humanity into a condition of sin and misery. But would God leave all of mankind to perish? If the story ended there, the story would start and end as a tragedy. But God, out of his mere good pleasure, promised to deliver his people out of sin and misery and to deliver them into salvation by a redeemer, Jesus Christ. Jesus the redeemer, the promised seed of Eve from Genesis 3, he would succeed in every area where Adam and Israel both failed. Jesus would succeed in every area where you and I have both failed. And unlike Adam and Israel and the rest of humanity, Jesus would perfectly fulfill God's law. He would have no need for sacrifices to be made on his behalf. Rather, he would be the substitutionary sacrifice for God's elect people. He would be born free from sin, yet he would die in man's place for our sin. He would take on himself the full wrath of God, yet the slain lamb would defeat death when he rose from the grave. Jesus rose and ascended to heaven, yet he promised to return for us in glory to make all things new. 
to undo the curse of sin, and to renew the created order. And this morning, we turn to the fourth category of Scripture's narrative, restoration. So turn with me now uh, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 to 5. If you're new to reading the Bible, uh, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers, the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. Uh, The book of Revelation is also the very last book of the Bible, so if you want to just flip to the end, find chapter 21, verses 3 to 5. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, uh, there are black hardback copies on the resource table for you. Feel free to pick up a copy, um, or you can also follow along on the screens up front. So Revelation 21, verses 3 to 5. The Word of God says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So friends, our main point this morning, if you walk out of here this morning to lunch, um, if there's anything that you take away Uh, It would be simply this, that God will one day dwell with his redeemed people forever and put a final end to sin and will make all things new. So again, God will one day dwell with his redeemed people forever, put a final end to sin, and will make all things new. This morning, we're going to see three glorious hopes as Christians as we wait for the Lord's return. The first hope being the dwelling place of God in verse 3. The second hope, the curse of sin undone in verse 4. And the third glorious hope, all things being made new in verse 5. Now before we dig into our passage, let's first consider two things that will be really helpful for our time together as we look at the book of Revelation. The first is, let us consider clarifying some expectations. And then secondly, let us consider the context of the book of Revelation. So when we're clarifying expectations, it's important because what often follows the book of Revelation are debate, confusion, and misunderstandings. Some churches just outright completely ignore this book. Other churches, though, might have the opposite issue, where they spend all of their limited ministry energy primarily concerned with the end times to the detriment of teaching on just about anything else in the scriptures. And often, the book of Revelation is also wrongly applied with the caricature of being the scary book of the Bible. So popularly, the book is understood to be about the apocalypse, filled with prophecies of disaster and images of beasts, the devil and fire, and the world coming to a total end. And some see this book, and they just can't imagine how can God be loving when there's just so much judgment in this book. But if we as a people would carefully study this book, we would see that this book is not just some wispy and cartoonish dream, nor is God unloving for judging sin. Now, friends, you may also be familiar with this book uh, because you have seen the countless books on understanding prophecies and the end times in your local Christian bookstore, all of them somehow claiming that they have solved the puzzle that is the end times, right? And so others have developed their entire end times understandings uh, thanks to a popular series of Christian fiction. So it's easy for many of us uh, to think about the book of Revelation and automatically fear that you're going to be left behind. 
Now, in our day, though, it has become increasingly easier for our theological convictions to be developed not by our careful study of the scriptures, but by whatever is the new trend in the culture. So, friends, don't ignore the book of Revelation in your study and personal devotion because you may be intimidated by what's in the book or you think that there is absolutely no way that you can understand what's in this book or because you think that what's in this book is not relevant to you. Every word of God is relevant to every part of your life regardless of how fantastic or dramatic the scenes might be. Now, if that's not you and you're someone who is perfectly confident in your theological system pertaining to the end times, friends, let me encourage you, don't proudly assume that the theological persuasion that you hold to has all of the right answers to every possible question regarding the end times. As we strive towards understanding all of the scriptures with clarity, we as a church should exercise great care, caution, and wisdom with one another as we may disagree on a variety of theological or even practical issues. But all of us should approach this book, just like we would with any other book in the Bible, with an earnest desire for understanding, humility, and a spirit of obedience and application. So whatever our positions may be on the millennium or anything else related to the end times, the major point is that Satan will finally be defeated and that even before that time, God takes care of his saints and he blesses them through his triumphant rule. And so this assurance should comfort every Christian no matter their millennial position. Now, secondly, understanding the context of this book, this would be really helpful. So if you open the very beginning of the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1, the very opening of the book announces both the book's title, it's a revelation, not revelations, revelation, and its divine author being Jesus Christ. Many of us think that this is John's revelation that he gives to the church, but if you look carefully, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ that he gives to his servant John, who then gives it to his church. And so, just a high-level overview, this book is an unveiling of unseen spiritual forces that are operating behind the scenes in history and controlling its events and outcome. And careful study of this book will reflect a series of symbolic visions that exhibit the influence of Old Testament prophecies, especially those received by Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. So as you've been reading through the Old Testament earlier on this year, when you got to Revelation, you probably were familiar with some of the imagery and some of the language in Revelation. This book's also prophecy, not simply just as a divine prediction of the future events that are coming, but prophecy in the Old Testament sense also that it would serve as a divine diagnosis of the present state of affairs. The divine author identified in the opening verse is Jesus the Messiah, and we're shown here in the opening of the book that he has the authority from God to describe the coming events to a servant John for communication to the church. So without denying his own role in the composition of the book, John presents himself more as a recipient and a recorder of visions than as the author of Revelation's message. But the principal theme is this in Revelation, that God rules history and will bring it to a triumphal climax in Christ. 
God rules history and will bring it to a triumphal climax in Christ. That's in chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. And he is ruling presently in his sovereign wisdom and power. And in the coming future, he will dwell with his redeemed people forever and will rule with them. Now, some helpful words here, friends. The book of Revelation is not meant to be used as a spiritual calculator to, to determine the exact date of Jesus' return or to identify the specific identity of who the final Antichrist is. That's just not what the book is meant to do. This book is a dramatic book full of rich and symbolic imagery that is meant to give the Christian a God-centered view of history, the present, and the future that is to come. So Revelation unveils the unseen spiritual war in which the church is engaged. The cosmic conflict between God and his Christ on the one hand and Satan and his evil allies, both demonic and human, on the other. And in this conflict, Jesus the Lamb has already won the decisive victory through his sacrificial death. But his church continues to be assaulted by the dragon in its death throes through persecution, false teaching, and the allure of material affluence and cultural approval. Now, friends, while persecution may be uh, possibly one of the greatest dangers that our brothers and sisters in various parts of the world face, persecution is not necessarily the greatest threat to the church here in America. Uh, But the church is constantly rattled with the dangers of false teaching, the allure of material affluence, and the dangers of cultural approval. It's all around us. You do not have to look very far. It's amazing to me how the most popular Christian book of 2019 had absolutely nothing to do with Jesus Christ. The New York Times bestselling author of the top book, top Christian book of 2019, tells her readers, stop apologizing. And instead, she gives you a shame-free plan for embracing and achieving all of your goals because, and I quote, All that really matters is how bad you want those dreams and what you're willing to do to make them happen, end quote. Yet Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, tells us that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Cross really isn't much of a dream, is it? But friends, When our eyes shift away from Jesus, it is not difficult for us to buy into the nonsense that both the market and the culture are trying to peddle to us. And until Jesus returns, the church will continue to be assaulted by Satan and his followers in ways that would appear less than dramatic or sensational. But friends, we can rejoice knowing that Jesus still sits on his throne, and it's from that throne that he will victoriously bring his church through to the end. Now, as we come to Revelation chapter 20, we are shown in Revelation chapter 20 God's complete and final removal of Satan, his followers, and even death, which were all thrown into the lake of fire. That's chapter 20, verses 10 and 14. So with all of God's enemies finally defeated and forever put away, we see the victorious King Jesus coming to fulfill his final work, the renewal of the entire cosmos, the created physical order and the created spiritual order. So friends, with that, let's look at our first hope. 
the dwelling place of God. Look with me in Revelation 21, verse, verse number 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Friends, God's throne is the central focus in this scene. One pastor commented, At the center of history is not an impersonal chemical reaction. At the center of the universe is not chance and randomness. There is a throne. And on that throne, there is a sovereign God who rules the world. John goes on to tell us many other things about the future, but he wants us to get this clear at the beginning. At the center of everything is a throne, the throne of God. And we are called to ultimately trust nothing other than God on his throne. The world and all of us in it are not held in the hand of Caesar. We are not in the hand of any government or boss or family member. If we are Christians who trust in the lamb who was slain, we are in the hand of the one who bought us with the lamb's blood. The future is not meaningless. It is not anonymous. It is not foreboding and empty like a soon-to-be-occupied casket. No, the future is full and bright, and it is full and bright for Christians because of this throne. So friends, all of history has been under the sovereign rule of our God on this throne. Your present moment is being wisely governed by our sovereign God on his throne. And your coming future will be directed by our sovereign God on his throne. And in verse 3, we see the greatest blessing of heaven. It is not the simple escape of pain and suffering, nor is it our reunion with our lost loved ones or our pets. It is this, the dwelling in the presence of our glorious God, where we will have unhindered fellowship with Jesus Christ forever. Dwelling with Jesus is the greatest blessing we can possibly receive, and that blessing is coming to us. And friends, that is why the future for Christians is indeed full and bright. And in Revelation 21, verse 3, we not only see this coming future that is ours to grasp, we see the trustworthiness and the faithfulness of God to us and chiefly to his own word. And here's why. If you're a note taker, Got these broken down in bullets for you. Revelation 21 verse 3 gives us the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 verse 7. To be God with you and to your offspring after you. Here we see the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel in Exodus chapter 6 verse 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Here we see the fulfillment of the shadow of the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 26 where the Lord instructed his people to build a tabernacle for his dwelling which symbolically would represent the Garden of Eden, where God first dwelt with Adam and Eve. Here we see the fulfillment of God's promise in Le uh, Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 to 12. The Lord says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Walk among you. Again, Harking back to Eden when God walked in the garden with his people. 
Here we see the fulfillment of the promise given in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 26 and 27, when God swore he would be the God of his people and all the nations would know that he is the Lord because his sanctuary would be in the midst of his people forever. Christians, this is the hope that we have, that in Christ, God will dwell with us forever. Now, while in this life, friends, you will indeed feel the sting of loneliness and pain and suffering and depression, a great day is coming when the former things will pass away. God himself will dwell with you, and you will be with him forever, never to be burdened by the pain or fear of being alone ever again. And it is on this great day that you will never again have to wonder if God cares for you or if he has time for you or if he will indeed do what he promised to you that he would. Friends, our hope is this, that God will again walk among his people just like he did in the garden. Our hope that we rejoice in is that Jesus will indeed undo all that sin has undone. Jesus will repair all that sin has ravaged and broken. And that brings us to our second great hope, the curse of sin undone. Look with me in verse number four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, the hope and comfort given to us in this passage is uniquely a Christian hope and a Christian comfort. And if you're here today and you are not a Christian, know this, that Christians eagerly look forward to the future of heaven. Not the cartoonish place that we see with baby angels playing the harp. We as Christians yearn for this coming day when God will wipe away every one of our tears, where death will never again have any power over us, where all mourning and grieving will come to an end, when all crying and pain has come to an end. Now, my Christian friends, some of you might be in here today, and you are not in a place where you are presently walking with God and walking with one another uh, through suffering, pain, or loss. And so while you may gladly affirm that this verse is true, uh, it honestly, if we're honest with one another, it might feel a little bit abstract. The potency of the truth might not be as felt as it would if you were currently uh, experiencing suffering or pain. But there are others of you here today, and you are presently experiencing great pain and deep suffering and bitter disappointments. Life has been hard, and your burdens have been heavy. And you may be someone who is no stranger to mourning and crying and pain, saying out loud to the Lord, Lord, when will the darkness lift? Won't you rejoice, uh, restore to me the joy of your salvation? You may be experiencing pain so deep that it has taken every ounce of strength that you could muster, muster simply even to come to church this morning. Friends, whatever your sorrows may be, all of the talk of joy and merriment and cheer during Christmas time, honestly, can make all our sorrows feel all the more acute. And so while pain is a promised threat to us in this life, 
Friends, you can rest and take comfort in knowing that whatever your pain and sorrow and difficulty and suffering might be right now, there is no hardship that is bigger, deeper, or lasts longer than God. So whatever it is that you are currently experiencing, there is no hardship that is bigger, deeper, or lasts longer than God. Now to my non-Christian friends here this morning, uh, let me just say how glad I am you're here with us. And uh, I I honestly, genuinely hope that you find our congregation to be warm and welcoming. Uh, But friends, honestly, I would ask you, what do you make of suffering? What is your answer to our suffering as human beings? Is it simply suffering is what it is? Is your response to suffering simply we just all have to grit our teeth and bear with this reality? feels a little insufficient to me. Friends, I would ask you, how will your tears be wiped away? What reason do you make of suffering, and more specifically, of the suffering you are experiencing? What reason do you make of the suffering that, friends, honestly, that you have caused to others? What lasting comfort do you have confidence in for this life? What lasting hope do you have for the life that is to come? Friends, you may honestly find temporary comforts and temporary reprieves from your present suffering, but those benefits are short-term benefits. They're counterfeit salvations. And you, friends, pay too high a price for those knockoff salvations. And if you ask yourself, consider, when have they ever really worked? You need better news than a myriad of temporary fixes to your suffering that don't work. Those temporary reprieves, they fade away. Friends, you need good news, not just for your suffering, but also for the reconciliation and restoration that you need with God. Friends, the good news, if you're not, if you're not a Christian here today, hope that you'll think about this over lunch. The good news that you need is this, that the one and only God who is holy has made us in his image to know him. But we, all of us, have sinned and cut ourselves off from him. In his great love, God became a man in Jesus, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross, thus fulfilling the law himself and taking on himself the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever turn and trust in him. He rose from the dead showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us had been exhausted. He now calls us to repent of our sins and trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. And if we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus, we are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God. If you hear the gospel this morning and you think to yourself, well, I know that God forgives me, but I I just can't forgive myself, Friends, let me love you with the truth and tell you that all that really means is that you have failed an idol of your own making whose approval is more important to you than God's approval is. Friends, turn from your sin. This promise of God's in verse 4 to undo the curse of sin is exclusively a promise to Christians. And if you would repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, this exclusive promise can exclusively be yours. 
Friends, I can neither pressure you to convert, nor can I coerce you to believe, but I can urge you to place your faith and your trust in Jesus. And if you have more questions about what it means to trust in Jesus, you can come see me at the end of the service. You can come see Pastor Josh or Pastor Tim uh, at the end of the service. We would be glad to talk to you about what it means to have a new, reconciled, restored relationship with God and to dwell with him forever. But friends, do not delay in your repentance and in your trusting in Christ. Submit your present sufferings to him. You may not see all your sufferings relieved or all your mourning immediately turn into joy. Uh, You may not have all your tears wiped away right away, but you will, friends, find a new and everlasting life with God. One that will one day lead you to dwell with God in joy and peace forever. And it is only in Jesus where all your tears will be wiped away. All your mourning will come to an end. All your pains will cease. Death will finally be put to an end. The old will pass away in Jesus Christ. Sam Storms, a pastor in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, he offers some really uh, great comfort and uh, uh, just commenting on our passage here in verse 4. And I'm going to quote him in length here. So while I do, my prayer is, that you, friends, brothers and sisters, will find great comfort in the Lord here in verse 4. Here's Sam Storms. How could we possibly weep in sorrow and sadness and anguish if we are with God and God is with us? There are, of course, multiple reasons why we cry. Tears of joy and gratitude and amazement will certainly be present in the new earth, but gone forever are the tears caused by grief and pain and sin. The tears that we shed now because of persecution and slander will nowhere be found in the age to come. But look closely at what is said in verse 4. It isn't the case that you and I will wipe away our own tears. God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Many of you are weeping today. Some of you hold back tears of sorrow and suffering for fear that if you ever yielded to the tendency to weep, you wouldn't be able to stop the flow. But in the new earth, God will personally wipe away every tear. He will personally banish from your thoughts and your experience everything and anything that in this life has led you to cry. Your sorrow today may feel overwhelming and endless, but it is not. God will make certain of that when he wipes away every tear from your eyes. And he will do it because he will have banished from your experience every cause of pain and sorrow. Here we find the fulfillment of what, is, what was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and shine, uh, sighing shall flee away. Friends, verse 4, death shall be no more. That means no more death. No more death. Not of husbands, wives, aunts, uncles, children, brothers, sisters, grandfathers, grandmothers, cousins, friends, neighbors. Funeral homes will be be put out of business. Cemeteries will be empty. For all will have been raised in glorified bodies that are no longer susceptible to disease and decay. Never again the long meetings at the funeral home deciding on caskets and vaults and limos and flowers. No graveside services. No obituaries to be read. No video tributes of a person's life. 
No more eulogies, no flowers to be sent, or cards of condolences to be written. Never again a long caravan of cars with their headlights on. No police escorts to the cemetery. No headstones, no more awkward moments when you just don't know what to say. Again in verse 4, neither shall there be any more pain. There will be no physical pain because our bodies will have been glorified and made like unto the body of Jesus. And Paul spoke of this in Romans chapter 8. He called it the redemption of our bodies. Romans chapter 8 verse 23. And earlier in Romans chapter 8, he made this remarkable promise. Romans chapter 8 verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul again declares this perishable body, that is to say that this body that is subject to germs and bacteria and cancer and old age and decay, this perishable body must, be put, must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. And, when, and then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? This is, again, what Paul had in mind when he assured us in uh, the letter to the Philippians in chapter 3 that Jesus will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. It's Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. That is why there will no longer be kidney failure or heart disease or diabetes or cancer. No more asking why me or, why, or how long. No more decay or disillusion. Those of you who live in constant chronic pain and disability should be especially encouraged and empowered to persevere because the day is coming and when it comes, to come forever and never to be reversed when all pain will be gone. And not just physical pain, but emotional pain, marital pain, relational pain, the pain of a wayward child or an unfaithful spouse, the pain of disappointment and loss, indeed, the pain of every sort and from every cause, all will be gone. You who suffer from depression or anxiety or relentless fear will forever and finally be set free. The joy and happiness and elation that will be yours will be immeasurably, indeed infinitely, exceed anything that you have ever experienced in this life or hope to have experienced. This is because, verse 4, the former things have passed away. The former things is referring to whatever may have been the cause of your pain. It will have disappeared, never again to reemerge. Indeed, as God himself declares in verse 5, he is making all things new. He is making all things new. And that, friends, is our third glorious hope, that all things being made new. Look with me in verse 5. John records for us, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So, friends, we enter a new year, and as we think about all the new things that are going to be around us, ask yourself, what is God making new? Answer simple. It's all things. Jesus will make all things new. The entire cosmos, the physical order, the spiritual order, everything is being made new by Jesus. 
And this, friends, is not a work that is dependent upon you or me. In God's grand theater of creation, redemption, and restoration, friends, we are simply the audience. We make no contributions to his work of renewal. The only thing that you and I have contributed to is the fall. We have only contributed to our own brokenness with God. But creation and redemption and restoration, friends, you can take comfort in the fact that it, they are all in God's careful hands. Do not think that you can add to God's work either in salvation or in his work of restoration. But notice with me also that John here, he did not record that he found the Lord to be frantically pacing back and forth trying to figure out a last-minute plan to fix, with, fix what's wrong with the world. Notice that the Lord, unlike many of us, does not appear to be frazzled or panicked in his throne room. What's the Lord's posture here? He's sitting. Remember back to when we read through uh, the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 2. While the nations rage against the Lord, verse, uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 4, he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The nations rage, but God sovereignly sits on his throne laughing. Friends, our God is a sovereign God. All things are under his perfect and timely wisdom and rule. Nothing in this life goes beyond his notice, and no one will ever usurp his power and authority. The Lord does not have emergencies or plan Bs. And you can take comfort in Jesus knowing that, friends, he sovereignly sits on his throne, wisely governing his universe, and you are in his universe. So he is wisely governing all parts of your life today. And the Lord has given us a solemn promise, a sworn hope that he is making all things new. And with this hope, you can never, ever, ever be disappointed. And not only do we have a sworn hope that God will make all things new, not a reboot, not just a, a little bit of newness added to some old things. He is making all things new. Not only do we have this sworn hope, implied in our passage here in verse 5 is also the command that the people of God are to trust in God's word and his promise because his words are trustworthy. Look at verse 5. Jesus so bluntly would tell his servant John, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Friends, in a social media age where words are just freely thrown around left and right, can we believe what we hear to be true? We can when God speaks them. The word of God is trustworthy and true. The great challenge in our lives may not necessarily be a personal trial or even persecution. Uh, the great challenge in our lives may not be uh, our uh, attempts to uh, maintain our new resolutions that we inevitably give up in the first week of February. Friends, far less dramatic than persecution or trials, our great challenge is often simply our regularly trusting God's word, believing that all of God's words to us are trustworthy and true. Friends, how do we know that God's words are trustworthy and true? Storms, again, here is helpful. He says to us, We know because they are the words of him who is, quote, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It's in verse 6. God has staked his reputation on it. His honor and fidelity hang in the balance. He has said it, therefore it will come to pass. 
In fact, God speaks as if it has already come to pass. It is done in verse 6. Verse 6 was not part of, my, or part of our preaching calendar, but this kind of just fits right in. It is done in verse 6 is literally, it has happened. The perfect tense. But even more to the point, it literally means that everything has happened. And in speaking this way, God, in speaking this way, God assures us, as only he can, that everything he promised will most assuredly come to pass. So God gives us the assurance and the confidence that we need to trust him. And that assurance will never be found in some external power or, or deep down inside of ourselves or in our own strength or in our own resume of achievements. The assurance that we need is only in God himself. He says to John and he says to all of us today, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So verse 5, why trust in God? Because God is the first and only source and the cause of all things. He is the final and only goal and end of all things. Everything originates from him, and everything finds its meaning and value in relation to how it glorifies and honors him. This means that there was nothing before him, Nothing explains him. Nothing has caused him. He simply and eternally is. There never was a time when God was not. There never was a time when he began to be. And there will never be a time when he isn't. He never at any time chose to be what he is. He has always been what he always is and always will be. God did not emerge out of a variety of possibilities. Rather, everything emerged out of him when he called the universe into existence. He is the Alpha, and He is also the Omega. The goal of all things, friends, is the glory of God. The aim of all things, in your life and in mine, is the praise and honor of God. Nothing has any intrinsic value aside from its capacity to enjoy God and to make Him known. Friends, if history appears aimless to you, if your life today appears to be aimless, I assure you, it is not. Even the most random and seemingly senseless events in some mysterious way, in your life or in mine, is serving to point to God and to shine a light on his wisdom and justice and power and love and holiness. Friends, God will one day dwell with his redeemed people forever, put a final end to sin, and will make all things new. So perhaps in 2020, and until the Lord returns, perhaps our list of resolutions ought to begin with and end with resolved that I will trust God because his words are trustworthy and true. Let's pray. Father, as we eagerly yearn and look forward to the day that is coming when all our fears will be put to rest, all our pain and suffering will be put to an end, when all disappointments will be forever put away, when all your enemies will finally be put to an end when our grieving will cease. We pray, God, that you would give us grace to trust you, that, um, that we would rejoice knowing that yesterday, today, and forever, you are true and you will never change. Lord, give us courage to enter this new year, not to trust in ourselves, or in our own abilities, in our uh, resolutions for a new and better life. Lord, help us to trust you for the new life that you give to us in Jesus Christ. 
We pray, Father, that you would give us new eyes to see and ears to hear the goodness and the truth of the scriptures and of the gospel. Father, as we enter this new year, we ask that you would comfort us, that you would give us great joy. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in Jesus no matter our sorrows. Because we know that there is a day that is coming when, Jesus, you will wipe away all our tears and you will put away all our mourning. Never again shall we have to experience pain and suffering because we will be with you and you will embrace us and we will come to your city rejoicing and singing. So, Lord, we look forward to that day. And until that day, give us grace to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, whose name alone is worthy of our worship. We long for that day when we can see him face to face and give him the worship that he alone is worthy of receiving. We pray all this, Lord, now in Jesus' name. Amen.